0: All right, 1 Timothy 1, if you have a coffeehouse Bible, page 1023, 1023. This is part five of a, a series that I've seen the Lord use uh, in ways beyond my capacity. You know, I haven't hardly been able to stand the last couple of weeks. I've had vertigo from a ruptured eardrum, and today I'm standing upright, praise God. Uh, but more importantly, in my weakness, the Lord was very strong over the last month. I, I've seen him work in your hearts, and I'm praying that he'll do the same thing today. I wanna start out with just another update of something my family got to do last week. Um, Our our church planting network, the people who trained us, they've trained a lot of other people and they they brought us all in for a really special retreat in Nashville or in Franklin uh, this week. There were planters from five continents, Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, North America, about 30 cities, just dozens and dozens of, of planters. And it was so special. I just can't tell you how filled up we were by what happened. Uh, The Lord was near. We had worship experiences. We had powerful prayer. uh, We had a luxurious hotel. We had amazing meals. And we didn't have to plan any of it. And we didn't have to pay for any of it. It was just this great gift that the Lord gave to us through these people. But something else was happening in me during this retreat. Um as so often happens with me, if you know me, uh, there's this voice in my head that I call my inner critic. Some of you know that I've named her Sheila, and Sheila starts talking to me sometimes. Uh, so we have, we're having this great kind of experience, and, and Kelsey's having a cough at night, so we need to go to the pharmacy. We go to the pharmacy, and the whole time on our way there, I'm just talking about really how small I am and how small I feel, because there's a great leader in the room who's been really inspiring to me. I have such respect for him, and I just feel so insignificant when I'm around him. I feel like I can never do what he's doing. He is just so gifted in vision, and then I think, Lord, I'll never be like that and i I just went on and on and on, and Kelsey just kind of quietly listens, um, which she's used to that i I mean. I like to talk, uh, but it wasn't just that conversation. I would kept having it, kept coming to mind. That feeling of intimidation, a little bit of insecurity—you could call it imposter syndrome—it just kept resurfacing. And thankfully, the Lord, after a day of that, kind of showed me, like He showed me just the ridiculous nature of what was happening. That. I have gifts that he doesn't have, that he has gifts, yes, that are further developed, that he has gifts that he's still developing in me. And then if the Lord wants me to have vision, it's got to come from the Lord anyway. If the Lord wants me to do something, it's got to be from him. And besides, none of that actually matters because my significance doesn't come from the things I do. It doesn't come from the number of people following me. My significance comes from Christ in me. That's the hope of glory. And then it was like this wave of all of this. And I was just, thank you, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. You know, you are good to me, Lord. And This is what I want to explore today, because it's not just me. We had another experience at this retreat. Um, uh, We were worshiping, and I'm not the most expressive person when I worship. And so there's this young woman named Allison. She's from UK. Uh, Her and her husband have planted a church, and they're making disciples. The Lord's doing good work through them. Um, They had to to bring their children, because... I mean, it was so great to have uh, my in-laws watching our kids, but they didn't have that privilege. So, you know, a few moments, people would take their kids, and they, but then they got to encounter the Lord. They got to worship. And Allison was just, she was dancing before the Lord, just kind of, it was, it was like Second Samuel 6 when David comes in, and it's like, I will be more undignified than this. Um, she was praising him, and it was beautiful. The worship time ends, the teaching begins, and she goes to the bathroom and then we start hearing her wails just groaning and, and tears. Now is probably not the best time to check uh, voicemail. But. <laughs> so she's, she's wailing and crying. Not, not small tears. Not quiet tears. Allison is just a few people come around her who know her pretty well and they they start praying with her a few minutes later they come back in and they share what's happened Um, turns out she was about eight weeks pregnant and when she went to the bathroom she discovered that she was was most likely she could tell she was losing the baby right then they had already lost a baby this was hard this was pain on pain this was a bruise that was hit that wasn't healed But what was worse was that she had this this sense inside of her that it was her fault because of how she was just worshiping the Lord. And so the whole room gathered around her and contended for the baby. And we cried and we prayed. And we pushed back on that voice and that lie. And I don't think it's just me, and I don't think it's just Allison. I think in any room, there's so many voices inside of us, so many beliefs that do not reflect the full goodness of the truth of God and the truth of who he says we are. If that can happen in a room full of church planters, that can happen in a room like this. I I know that's where we all are today. We all carry these, I'm calling them this morning, ungodly beliefs. Ungodly beliefs is a phrase that I'm borrowing from the freedom pair people. But really, this is just like... It's the devil's scheme from the beginning, right? Do you remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? This is the, the attack. The attack is a lie about God, a, a half-truth, a twist. It's a lie about us. And then if you can lie about God and lie about us, then you can lie about what's right and what's wrong. All of it changes because of just one slight altering of a godly belief into an ungodly belief. This is, this is his... This is his go-to thing. It's not just Garden Eden. It's also the temptation of Jesus. If you can lie about God and you can lie about who he says I am, then you get to start changing right and wrong. And that's how he goes after Jesus. And it, of course, it doesn't work, thank God, that we have someone who understands our weaknesses, was tempted like we are, yet he's without sin. But that's how he attacks us. He attacks us with lies about God, lies about ourselves, and then when you change those things, you can change right and wrong. Lies about God. Theology, lies about self, identity, and then you can start changing morality. This is what the enemy does. He is the father of lies, Jesus says. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him, and when he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. He is the deceiver. John 10.10 10 says that he, he's the thief who comes in to steal and to kill and to destroy, and the way he does it primarily is, is through deception. It's through lies. It's through ungodly beliefs. Ungodly beliefs. So what is an ungodly belief? This is a definition that comes from Jen Barnett, the executive director of Freedom Prayer. And I think it's her book, Freedom Tools, but I get them confused. So she says an ungodly belief is basically this. It's any belief that doesn't fully align with God's truth. God is... All truth is God's truth, and so any belief that doesn't, that doesn't align with God's truth, but it's primarily that doesn't align with God's truth about himself and God's truth about us. That's an ungodly belief. Where do these come from? Well, they come from, she says, as very young children, we create core beliefs about ourselves, about others, our environment, and about God. Core lies form two, Jen says. These lies are held at the deepest emotional and subconscious level. They're held in the heart, and then they propel reactions and actions and decisions out, out of the heart. The heart kind of the tra- sets the trajectory for our lives. And so we have experiences that then attach perceptions and interpretations. And then over time, that perception becomes the filter by which we see the world. And those messages that are attached to those experiences... They start shaping our lives. They start being the the soundtrack behind the scenes of our lives. Let me give this illustration. You may have heard me say this before. I call this the worldview funnel. I got it from my friend Aaron Etheridge. He says, if you just think of God's truth as reality, kind of everything, all truth is God's truth, that's reality. But everything ends up being filtered through us and our experiences and our culture and the world. There's, I didn't... I didn't have enough little blanks for all the things that start shaping us. But it's things like your family of origin and your experiences with mom and dad, your attachment as a child, those things become a filter and a grid for how we see ourselves, how we see God, and how we see the world. But not only our family, but also our friendships and relationships, those end up shaping us. But so does trauma. Trauma and wounding have a significant impact on how we see the world, primarily on our beliefs about ourselves and So in moments of trauma, we interpret them in just harsh, negative ways about us. But do you see, there's other things that are good that also shape us, and they form us and limit what is actually kind of God's truth on it. Things like education. Education is a good thing. It's not like trauma, which is a bad. It's a good thing. Your your scriptures are a good thing, but sometimes our interpretations of scripture get so distorted that we end up boxing out God in some ways. Does that this makes sense so what we're going to do today is dive into 1 Timothy chapter 1 because Timothy is a young minister in a local church it's in the city of Ephesus and Paul writes to him about ungodly beliefs he writes to him about unbelief and about ignorance he's really concerned about what is believed and what is taught so we're going to look at kind of two halves of this text and then we're going to make some applications from the first half is where I'm trying to see the test of ungodly belief, and he's going to give us three, the test of ungodly belief. And then we're going to look at, really, the core godly beliefs that he shares, and he actually shares it through a personal experience. First Timothy 1 is a beautiful text. I can't wait to show it to you. Let's just start in verse 1. He's setting up the letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Who is writing this letter? Paul says, It's coming from me. I'm the one writing it down. Maybe a few friends are helping me. But I'm doing this because Jesus told me to do this. I'm doing this because God, our Savior, is giving me something for you, Timothy. Timothy, you need to hear this. Later on, he says, Timothy, verse 18, he's going to say, don't forget the prophetic word that was spoken over you. I'm I'm doing this to remind you of what God is saying to you and to your community. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. And he dives right in. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Do you see that phrase, false doctrines? Now, a lot of times people who argue about doctrine, uh, they can kind of appear as like fundamentalist and really sectarian and, and kind of small minded. They don't have a big view of the world and our tolerant culture. But Paul has concern about doctrine. He has concern about this. And he says, I get this concern from God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if, if God and Jesus have this concern and the apostles have this concern, I think we should have some concern for doctrine. But this concern is both kind of for the body, all of us, and it's for each of us. Does that make sense? It's for all of us together in a community, and it's for each of us, and he's going to speak to both of those things. Paul knows that what we believe changes how we live, and what we believe changes how we love. He's going to give us some tests to explore these doctrines. He says, here's what they're doing. They're they're promoting controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command, do you see the goal of of this command? The command that he says came from God, our Savior, and from King Jesus. What's the goal? Say it out loud. Love. The goal, he says, it, it can't be false. It has to be true. But truth has to also move you to love. He says that love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says truth and love should be working together. Truth and love should be working together. What we believe changes not only our mental states, but it also changes our behavior. He says, some, though, have departed from the, they've they've left them behind, and they have turned to meaningless talk. He's going to explore what that meaningless talk is. He says, verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law. The law, when he talks about it, it's not like the Constitution. It's not like, you know, the law, but he's actually talking about the Old Testament. That's what we would call it. He's talking about Israel's scriptures. Wait, Do you see where the, the ungodly beliefs are coming from in this community? These people want to read their Bibles and tell other people about it. And just a twist in the wrong direction, and it's, he says they've departed from something and left it behind. He says they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Okay, so in the community, there's some truth to what they're saying, but it's out of proportion. It's escalated too high. And so he says, we know that the law, it's good. The law is good. It, the law is, is, is good and perfect and true, he says in another place. The law is good if one uses it properly. So there's a test first of truth, but it has to be used properly, and it has to sync up with the, the purpose, the command. Do you remember it? Love. He says, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. The law is, it's kind of like an x-ray machine. Uh, one, of our, one of our dear friends is uh, confident, but still not totally sure that he has cancer. Um, two weeks ago, goes to the doctor, discovers something, and they say, we have to operate immediately. The way they discover it is through something, just imagine like an x-ray. The law is like the x-ray machine. It shows you what's wrong. But if they just keep sending you through x-rays expecting that that's gonna fix the problem, it doesn't. He says the law is like that. The law isn't for the righteous. The law is to show you the problem under the surface and then you need to go get the chemo. Then you need to go get the surgery and the law can't give you that medicine to, to actually heal and to cure. Does that make sense? So he says, it's actually for lawbreakers and rebels to show you to have the x-ray of sin in your heart. And then he draws in in this next kind of piled on passages, he draws from the Ten Commandments, kind of the heart of the law. But it's the Ten Commandments uh, with a twist a little bit, because he wants to take the Ten Commandments and he wants to speak to a city like Ephesus. And so he changes the words, but he has the same categories. So he says, Do you remember the first command, have no other gods before me, don't make any graven images? He says here, it's the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. It's people like you. The the law can expose those things. It's people who kill their fathers and mothers. Do you remember the Ten Commandment? You should honor your father. He's taking it to an extreme. I don't know what's happening in Ephesus, but he seems to be after him. Thou shall not murder. He says, it's for murderers. He says, don't commit adultery. He redefines adultery and he expands it. He says, it's all sexual immorality and it's those who practice homosexuality. And then he says, instead of thou shall not steal, he says, it's, this, is, this is for slave traders. He specifies this command. And man, I wish American Christians in the 17 and 1800s had read their Bibles and realized that the law's purpose was to expose this sin of theft. But here we are. That was the whole. God, he was was shining a light, but they missed it. And it's for slave slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else. And he doesn't go through the whole Ten Commandments. He just says, and whatever else, but look, that's contrary to sound doctrine. So he's already talked about false doctrine. It's a, literally, it's a different teaching. But now he, he introduces this phrase sound doctrine. And sound doctrine may be a trigger for you but it's it's actually a medical word that just means healthy. Um, physicians at the time, people who cared for, for bodies, they would use this word to talk about something healthy. It's like, it's, this is where he wants you to take, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> doesn't, I mean, what do I do here? <laughs> uh, the law is like an x-ray machine, but I want you to take the medicine. I want truth, yes. I want scripture, yes, but I want truth and love. So, Here's here's the healthy teaching, the healthy teaching. It's not just law. Look, it's gospel. the The healthy thing is that which conforms, is shaped around, fits in to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which He entrusted to me. Gospel. So here's the three tests that we saw in the first eleven verses. The first test of a belief to see if it's godly or ungodly, to see if it's whole and leads to flourishing in life. The first test is truth. Is this true or not? Is this true or not? No, this is a pretty basic test, right? It's a pretty basic test. Um, is it true? All truth is God's truth. So it doesn't have to just be, is this biblical? Is it true? That, that's a good place to start. The second place, is it, is it loving? The love test. Um, one, one scholar, his name is Michael Gorman, he says, Paul here is not interested in the vagaries of an introspective, clean conscience. He uses that phrase, though. But what he's actually interested in is the practical demonstration of love. Broadly understood is a right, covenantal relationship with others and with God. That, that's consistent. He says, this is law and gospel. God wants you to be related to him and to other people. It's love. It's truth, yes. But it's also love. A godly belief leads to love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, knowledge puffs up. Do you remember it? But love builds up. He says, some of you have a lot of knowledge. You have a lot of truth on your side. 1 Corinthians 13. He says, you can have all knowledge and you can have this powerful faith, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. You have to have, orthodoxy is so critical. But orthopraxy, right, right, living right practices that goes along with it it's essential so we need truth and we need love but we also need gospel <laughs> oh lord do we need the gospel gospel whoa. what's the counter what's the opposite of gospel in this context the opposite of gospel is not exactly law because he says the law is good but it's the law misread Through the lens, it seems like especially performance and productivity. There's a lot of messages that are true. They even seem like they produce results. You know, these things may make you wealthy. These things may give you a following. These things may make you feel good. But are they conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Do they reflect the downward descent of the Son of God to a cross, and then the upward descent from suffering through service into glory. And if they don't, he says, then that isn't a godly belief. It's not just a test of does it work? Does it get you what you want? Does it perform? Does it produce? And that is the lie that I was falling into. Jen Barnett, she really, when she looks at ungodly beliefs, she she really looks at that older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember the, the prodigal comes back home? He says, Lord, I'm unworthy to be your son. I want to be a slave. Will you just let me serve in your house? And then he embraces him, he throws the big party, he gives him the robe and the ring and the sandals. And then there's this older brother who is like a mirror for me. Even though I'm the youngest brother, um, he's out in the field. And he is so upset with his father. And he says, I've been slaving away this whole time for you. And you never gave me anything. Do you see the ungodly belief about God and about himself? It's an ungodly belief that he has to slave away for his father. That he has to perform and produce for his father. And maybe then he can earn enough to finally get the fatted calf. And he says, my son, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. Most of us, Jen says, Most of us with ungodly beliefs, beliefs that don't match with God's truth and character, we are workers by nature. We're workers by nature. Even the younger brother, to some extent, believed the same lie. I'm unworthy to be a son, make me a slave. This is kind of the heart of the gospel test. Does this rely on you to produce and to perform and to be productive? And in First Timothy, Paul says, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says, this is shipwrecking people's lives. Ungodly beliefs will get you off course. They will crash you into rocks, and then you will spill out, unable to get home. Says, this is not God's will for you. You see the three tests. Is it true? Is it loving? Is it gospel? Is it conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? But then he wants to give a personal example, and he wants to give the counter. If that's ungodly belief, what does a godly belief look like? Show us, Paul. 12 through 17. He says, I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has, look at all he's given me, he's given me, he's given me strength, he's considered me trustworthy, and he appointed me to his service. Me? Look what he did. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Most of you have probably been around church, but maybe there's somebody here who doesn't really know Paul's story. Um, in Acts chapter seven, there's the, the first man who's murdered for following Jesus. His name is Stephen. And it says that as the people surround Stephen and start throwing rocks at him to, to kill him, to murder him, it says that Saul, that's, that's Paul's other name. Some people think there was a conversion and he changed his name. The, the name change was just like a handy thing so that he could function in the Greek and Roman world. But Saul of Tarsus, it says that he was there. He was approving of the death. And it says that he was basically like holding everybody's jackets. He's the ringleader for what's happening. But then the next verse is right after the death of Stephen. It says that Saul went everywhere ravaging the church. And he went from house to house to house to house. Earlier in the book of Acts, it says that the believers went from house to house. They were sharing tables and they were having fellowship. And the, the favor of all the people's arms. Now Saul is going from house to house hunting them down. He's murdering them, he's killing them, and he's not shy about it. In a lot of his letters, he'll talk about Galatians chapter 1, for instance. He said, you've heard of me, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God, and I tried to destroy it. Philippians chapter 3, he says, as for zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. First Corinthians 15, he says, Jesus, this is the gospel that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. He was buried. He was raised the third day according to the scriptures. But then he says, but he appeared to me the least of the apostles who didn't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He just keeps coming back to this idea. He says, I was a, persecutor, I was a blasphemer. I was a violent man, but I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. You see his, what I'm calling today an ungodly belief. He says, it wrecked my life. And because it wrecked my life, it wrecked other people's lives. But the truth of the gospel is extraordinary. Just think about this. Saul of Tarsus was converted to Jesus Christ. He had an encounter with him. And Jesus saved him. And then Jesus sent him. He says, I'm going to send you to kings. I'm going to send you to rulers. I'm going to send you all the nations to the ends of the earth. And Paul says, I'm not worthy, but let's get after it. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, but his grace to me was not in vain. I labored harder than any of them. I got to work. I acted in ignorance and unbelief, and so God transformed him. And because he transformed him, the martyrs that he killed rejoiced the day that Saul died as they saw him enter into heaven. Just think of how amazing the gospel is, that it can turn a murderer, and martyrs just celebrating that the man that murdered them is coming into the room there. Give praise to Jesus Christ for what he's done through this guy. The grace, he says, of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. He's just showering in the grace of the Lord, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And he says, here is a trustworthy saying. It's a faithful saying. Literally, it's pistis. It's faith. This is true. Hang it on this. This is the trustworthy saying. It's deserving of full acceptance. Do you, he's drawing attention to what he's about to say. He's saying, listen up in the back, louder for those who haven't heard before. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is the chief of sinners passage for the apostle Paul. And he's saying that I am the chief. This is the truth. He's saying this is the core that God loves. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is patient. He's drawing on Exodus 34, when the Lord passed by Moses. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says all those words. He's saying, that's who Jesus is. He's gracious and merciful. He's patient to me. The same God that appeared to Moses now appeared to this man, and he came to save sinners. That's who God is, and this is who I am. I am saved. I am his. I am worthy because of who is in me you see the two core truths that he's saying about god theology and about identity who i am christ jesus came into the world to save sinners for that very reason i was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners christ jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life jason i love it when you do the table because your story is one where you constantly recognize that it took the immensity of God's grace and mercy to get you here. And Lord willing, he'll keep refining those beliefs that, that haunt you. And he'll push those back, not with a whip, but with mercy and love. Will you say this with me? We just read this word? This is how he closes this section. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's not done with a letter, but he can't help but to pause and praise for what God has done for him in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Give glory to God. We saw the test of unbelief, truth, love, and gospel, but then we saw the core of godly belief. We saw the test of ungodly belief in the core of godly belief, and the core is the truth of God and the truth of self, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Can you just take a little time and kind of explore this on your own? I'm not going to ask you to share this, um, at least not in a circled up group. I really considered it, (laughs) but some of you are brand new and you probably don't want to do that today. Um, Let me give you a few questions to explore this, this core together. We've done this exercise before if you've been through Welcome Home. Do you see these two blanks, the theology and identity? The first one is this. I know that God is blank. I find myself believing the lie that God is blank I know that I am blank but I find myself believing the lie that I'm blank can I give you just a little time to fill in the blank and then if three brave souls will answer out loud let's do two Um, the first one and then the second is that okay You might mind sharing. I know that God is love, but I find myself believing the lie that God isn't love. Thank you, Michael. One more on the first one. Alright, let's move to the second question. Somebody? Thank you. Yeah. One more. We could go all day, right? Here's the sinister thing about ungodly beliefs. We know they're not even true. And yet, they filter our lives, and they distort reality. So what do we do with these? In Second Corinthians, Paul, this, the same guy who's writing this letter, this is what he says. He says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. He says, if you want a godly belief, set it up to the glory of God, and then we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Let me, let me share a story. Um, I'm thankful to my daughter, Annie, who I forgot this at home, and she went out and picked some. A couple of weeks ago, over fall break, um, my family went to a crystal mine near Hot Springs, Arkansas. And it was so cool. The first thing we did was we, we took a tour. Um, they have a little kind of exhibit area. And you know there's incredible gemstones. There, there's uh, geodes. This is like me nerding out on rocks for a second. This, they're geodes as big as me that they have on display. It's awesome. And there's just beautiful colors, you know, like volcanic rock that he's transformed and just made amazing, spectacular things. But then there's also all these very clear crystals all over the place. They're huge, massive crystals. And they kept saying this phrase, if it's clear, we found it here. If it's clear, we found it here. And I was getting pumped up. We were about to go mine with our kids. And I was like, I'm going to go find one of these bad boys. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) There's some incredible stuff. Like, Kelsey and I were like, I can't wait to get out and dig in this dirt. Uh, (laughs) Seriously, it was so fun. Uh, Parents, a free tip. Go to uh, uh, crystal mining with your kids. And so we get out there and we're digging for a while and we're finding cool stuff. And we kind of set it off to the side. And then people next to you are just like pulling really amazing crystals and they're kind of dusting it off. You know, they're all prepared. There's like a campground on site. Like some people have been doing this for days. This is not their first rodeo with crystal mining. And they wipe it off and then they hold it up. And it's like a big crystal. Not, not, this is a small one. They're holding up like big crystal clear things. And I'm like, Whoa, and then there's another one and then there's another one. It's just all around me. People are finding this stuff. And so I start, you know, oh, there's a clean edge. Let me put that in my bucket. Let me put that. And then after a while I take like a hundred I'm not exaggerating, like a hundred pounds of crystals. And I'm like, I need to go wash these things off and see what we have, you know. I'm gonna start selling these things on eBay or something. And I go over to the water station and they've got a water hose. It's not like the fanciest place you've ever been. It's a big mud pit, basically. Um, (laughs) I'm overselling it. Um, and I start spraying off the mud and the clay. They call it peanut butter because that's exactly what it looks and feels like. And so you have to like pick out all the, the mud and dirt. And and I, I start realizing the, the whole cleanup area is just piled with crystals. You know, I was like, and then I'll start looking at my stuff and I'm like, oh. you know, I'm not finding the crystal clear thing. I'm finding things I spray off the dirt, and it's like, oh, that's really cloudy. Like, you know, it's like I found something awesome, and it's like this is cool, but I'm not selling this thing, you know. It's cool. It's got it's it's got real crystal that, you know, the, the Lord formed through like heat and chemicals. It's it's really neat, but I can't see it through it. And I think this is basically exactly. Basically, exactly. This is very similar, very similar uh, uh, to how ungodly beliefs function. We have these things buried, and we, we just operate as if they're true all the time. And when you actually pull them up and look at them, you're like, "This isn't as clean as I thought it was." And all it takes is just a, just a little like spray from the water hose, a little kind of dust off, and it's like, "Oh, this isn't quite what I thought it was." And when you shine it in the light, you, you realize a whole lot more is true. When you say it out loud, then you realize that belief isn't actually entirely true. I've been operating on an operating system underneath the surface that isn't true. Is this metaphor making any sense at all? I hope so. If not, go crystal mining. You'll be disappointed like I was. <laughs> but we don't have to go crystal mining to know this experience. But this is the tool for encountering the glory of God. It's, it's really... To if, what does it look like to take every thought captive? It looks like that, that same process that we've been saying in the series of asking the Lord to reveal and then working with the Lord, speaking to the Lord out loud with, with your friends and community even to renounce it and then to replace it with the, with the reality of what actually is true of who God is and who he says you are. And this doesn't have to be like the most invasive experience. All it takes is just a little spray of the water hose and a little wipe off. And, but mostly it takes, you have to get it out of the dirt and look at it. There's a, there's a, a man named A.W. Tozer. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. If he's going by initials, you know it's not like 2022. He's <laughs> early 20th century. He says that, that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God... He says, it's of immense importance to us. How we think of God is so important, he's saying. It's compared with our actual thoughts about him. He says, our creedal statements are of little consequence. What you actually confess doesn't really matter. It's the thing hidden underneath. He says, our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of religious notions that require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. And then you pull something out, and it's just like, that's just a rock. (laughs) I need to get rid of that. And you discard it over in the pile with all the other stuff that isn't true, isn't godly, isn't crystal clear truth, a reflection of him. You see, it's unearthed and exposed, he says, for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. We were just talking about this. It's in the hard moments, in the exposing, in the refining fire, in the humiliation that we feel these things. And then in that moment, if you can turn that to God, he can transform it and replace it. But sometimes it just sticks. But in those moments, they become, we start saying them out loud. I say them out loud. I'm an external processor. We start saying them in our own heads. And if we can get them out and shine some light and wash them off, we will realize this is the prayer of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me only have the crystal clear things. Get rid of all the other stuff. The thief comes in to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus says next, but I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. So we believe these lies about who God is and who we are, and he says, I want to do something about these lies. Will you show them to me, and I'll show you who you really are. There's this desire that we have to do this, and you may be thinking, well, I can't do that. Uh, Dallas Willard, I, I love him. He says, disciplines are activities that are in my power now that enable us to do what we can't do by direct effort. So what are a few disciplines to practice this? If you want to practice truth and love, it, it's going to take reflecting on the word and communion with God. It's going to take beholding him. Your word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. And when you start holding things up and saying them out loud to other people, he will speak the word of truth from scripture to you. He will speak those messages of grace and the identity to you. So it takes reflecting on the word and beholding God. Let me say it like this. It takes seeing Jesus. Uh, this, is, this is Saul. Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus to go from house to house, ravaging the church, murdering Christians, persecuting the church. He's encountered by the Lord. And he sees this light and hears the sound. And do you know what he hears? Jesus speaks to him and he says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. He shows himself. It's not hidden from him. This is who I am. This is, I know what you've done. You're doing it to me. But I am Jesus. And from that moment on, the ungodly belief is exposed to the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And he's not the same man anymore. He's not the same man anymore. This is is, uh, Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley is a beautiful hymn writer, poet. He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The Willard says, "The person and gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and gospel of Jesus Christ, building on simple, "Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so," is the only complete answer. The, the only complete answer is the simple phrase jesus loves me this i know for the bible tells me so it's the only complete answer to the false and destructive images and ideas that control the life of those away from god the process of spiritual formation in christ is one of progressively replacing those images and those destructive ideas with the images and the ideas that fill the mind of jesus himself we need to see jesus and we need to see as jesus sees you become what you behold Jen says, every problem caused by untruth, the solution is nearness to God. For every fear, false identity, jealous thought, disconnection, bitter feeling, the remedy is being close to God as a son or a daughter. Uh, let, me, let me go back to Allison. Remember, she's, she's wailing. A few go and they minister to her. And then she and her husband come back in, and everybody circles up and prays. We cry, we contend, we pray. we We don't fully know what to do in this moment. We're still praying for life. We're still praying for faith, but we're we're praying. everybody's in agreement. We have to get that lie out. And a few hours later we were we were back for another session, which meant another time of worship. And you know i'm I'm just I'm just worshiping. I'm, I'm trying to behold the Lord and I'm, I'm trying to encounter him and he's really ministering to me. It was really special. But then I kind of opened my eyes and I, I look over to the side and there she is. Just dancing again. Hands up, beholding him. Because the Lord is good and he's gentle. And he didn't take away the pain physically or emotionally for Allison. We saw her her husband the next morning and she was just trying to get some time alone and just trying to get some rest. She's trying to recover. It's still hard. It doesn't take away the hard, but it does shine light on the truth and the love of God conformed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she is beholding him again, just dancing in joy before her Lord. Didn't always happen that quickly, right? But man, when you can show it to him, then he can get that out and you can come near. I'm excited about this new ministry called Freedom Prayer where we get to behold the Lord and be near him. And he helps reveal and then with us, by his grace, we renounce and then he gives us messages that replace. We had about 30 people at the training. Our our team's going to be pretty large for the size of our church. Praise God. Because I, it, very soon, we want to kind of open it up to everybody in, in this church. And then after that, we want to open it up to the city because this city needs to encounter the grace of God that says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sinners like me. Would you stand? I want to bless you with a prayer that's taken from 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.